Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Um, to those of you who this is your first trip to the University of Portland, we're glad to have you here. It's your first trip to an event uh, sponsored by the Garabetta Center. We're thrilled. And even if you um, have, are here every single day, we are really thrilled that you're here. We always love it when we're, the, when we're on the verge of needing more chairs for something. So Happy New Year and Happy Mardi Gras. There's lots of chocolate um, and yummy things back there, and we hope that you will help yourself to those. My name is Karen Eichler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we run the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university. Um, always looking to make connections across disciplines and, and find ways to ignite people's spiritual imaginations, and you're in for such a treat tonight. Um, a few housekeeping details. One, if you are a K-12 teacher in any school system, we are pleased to be able to offer you tonight, um, at no cost to you, professional development units. All you need to do is, we have a sign-up sheet on the table back there. Give us your name and your email address and the school at which you do your educational magic, and we'll have those in the mail to you tomorrow. Um, which is great. If you are not part of our mailing list and would like to um, stay abreast of all the things that we have going on, we also have a sign-up sheet for that in the back, as well as flyers that, that tell you uh, what's going on. We have, we're going to be ruining a couple of movies for people this semester. Uh, Inside Out is coming up next week, and Mad Max Fury Road uh, is part of our Bringing Eyes of Faith to Film. We are providing some panels for the main stage plays that our theater department is doing. We have a talk coming up on the biblical response to the death penalty, uh, and, and just lots of things all open, free and open to the public. And I should also put in a pitch that um, in less than a week, um, on Monday, February 15th, the author Leila Leilami, who wrote The Moore's Account, um, shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award, and part of our UP Read series this, um, this year, will be giving a talk in Buckley Center Auditorium, free and open to the public, and we're really excited about that. We're partnering with um, several units on campus to bring her. Is that Perfect. Uh, that's pretty good? Okay. So why are we here tonight? When you talk to our speaker about her work as a professor of psychology at Seton Hall University in New Jersey, she'll say things like, I teach courses that actually make people not want to study psychology. Things like <laughs> experimental design and statistics and perception. And I write articles with titles like Development of Episodic and Autobiographical Memory or Change in Perceptual Form Attenuates to Use of Fluency Heuristic in Recognition. But if you dig a little deeper, you'll find that her classes always fill up really early, that master's students clamor to work in her lab, and you'll find out that in addition to earning awards for her research in cognitive psychology, she teaches a course in the Seton Hall Corps called Journey of Transformation that she's led her colleagues at Seton Hall in retreats on cultivating sacramental imagination, servant leadership, and living a life of authenticity and balance, and that she's a leader on her very large campus in helping them figure out how to live out their own Catholic identity, which isn't something we usually see in a psychology professor. For all of that work, which has stretched her way out of her graduate school comfort zone, she's been honored with the Collegium Visionary Award this year, and we in the Garabena Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture, who are always look to, looking to connect with people from other academic disciplines, thought that she would be an excellent guest uh, to come to the university and speak with us about puns prayer and practice, how having memory makes it easier to have faith and fun. Um, this is funded by the Beckman Humor Project, which is a newish endeavor of the University of Portland uh, set up to bring in programming that uses humor as a gentle sideways weapon against the forces of darkness. And I invite you to um, join me in welcoming Dr. Marianne Lloyd. Thank 
you very much. Um, so I want to start with some thanks. I'd like to thank uh, the Garavanta Center, especially Dr. Eifler and Father Charlie for in, um, inviting me here to your wonderful campus. I spent a week here several summers ago, so as a memory person, I'm always interested to return somewhere and see how well my memory works, and it turns out moderately well. I've only had to direct, ask for directions once, um, so I think that that's a success uh, for me. Um, tonight, I'm really excited to talk to you a bit about how the basic memory work that I do um, is relevant to, as my talk title says, uh, both faith and having fun. And one of my hopes is that you'll leave the talk feeling a little more appreciative of your own memory. I find that when I tell people that I study memory for a living, they have one of two responses. They either want to tell me how bad their memory is or tell me how bad the person they've chosen to, as a life partner has of a memory, right? Um, and I say that that's normally, um, it's not usually true. Uh, unfortunately, we often just test our memory in a way that's that not it's not the most helpful for it to look to succeed. So I have, I have many goals, but one of them is that you'll feel a little more um, proud of the memory that you have. So my plan for tonight, I want to give um, just some introductions or caveats to the way that I'm going to approach the material. I'm going to give a brief review of memory. I assume that I'm the only person um, that has, has a PhD in cognitive psychology. Um, I actually hope that whenever you do a light review of your own field that there's no experts in the room that want to nitpick. Um, then I'd like to talk a bit about these three pieces. So what do we know about memory as it relates to humor? What do um, we know about memory as it relates to faith? And then finally, um, I think especially appropriate as we hit Lent tomorrow, for those of you um, that might want to kind of use this as a time to bolster your own faith, how can we use um, what we know about memory in the laboratory to maybe uh, have a, a better spiritual life? So I want to start with some context, one of which is that I am not a theologian. Um, I have probably read... 40 total pages of things written by theology and been to a handful of talks. So um, I'm going to talk about memory more from a brain perspective, but recognizing that within theology, memory holds a very different and, and sacred place. So because of Dr. Eifler, I've been working a bit with a theologian um, who's coming next week to give a talk called In Memory of Me, Memory, Desire, and the Search um, for God. And in this talk, um, he's promised to talk about the idea of sacramental memory, how far memory can get us in finding God, and the places that it fails. So I will not be talking about it from that perspective. Um, instead, I'm going to talk about it more from the perspective that I am a practicing Catholic, uh, but not a theologian. Um, and because of this, I'm going to take an approach that's pretty atypical for the way that my field has treated religion and spirituality. So I like to say that uh, what my field, and to some degree social psychologists and other lab scientists, we've, we've labified this idea of faith. So if you were to go into the literature and read what psychologists, um, it's, it's as if what we've tried to do is uh, figure out um, some variables that let us understand why people are religious, okay? and, and it, almost in a, in a way to explain it away. I don't want to take that approach at all. The approach that I'm taking tonight is to say, okay, faith is something important, faith is something real, um, let's now try to understand that using what we know about cognitive psychology rather than trying to use cognitive psychology to understand faith. And if you read this literature, you'll find that um, there's a lot of taglines, right? It makes for fun studies like thinking about God makes you a nice person or a prayer a day keeps the blues at bay. Um, and I think that those kind of headlines, in a way, they sort of cheapen, um, they can cheapen the, uh, the idea of spirituality and faith. So that I wanted to say that that's not what I'm going to do. I want to almost sort of turn the tables around, which is also why I'm glad there aren't cognitive psychologists in the room, because I think that a lot of people in my field would say that this is a terrible idea. I'm taking a wrong term. We want to labify things. <coughs> So I'd like to just start with a question. You seem, I feel like you're an enthusiastic participatory audience. So I'm going to put a question up here on the screen. I would like you to shout out the answer. But if you are not a shouter, you can, it's a numeric answer. You can just raise your hand with the answer. Are we ready? Ready. Okay. I'd like to know how many animals of each kind Moses took on the ark. Two. 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 Two
Right. Yeah. Few. Right. Yeah. Okay. I know. Right? It's a New Jersey thing. We're always looking to scan. Okay. Moses. Um, thank you for those of you who answered. This is a fine, you can find dozens of studies on this in the field of memory. This is called the Moses Illusion. It's incredibly reliable. Um, but it demonstrates something important about memory that we'll, that we'll talk about later. But sort of keep that uh, confident wrong answer in mind. So now a second question. I'd like you to just think about, if you aren't taking notes right now, how would you answer the question if I asked you to, to define memory um, or think about examples of memory? What would you, what would you come up with? So just take a, take a moment to think about that. Okay. That was an easier question, which I'm, I think you'll be right on this one. And I would guess that some of the things that you thought about just then um, likely answers might include some autobiographical events, so maybe weddings or graduations or a vacation that you recently went on or maybe even just, you know, something you thought about, oh, did, did I eat dessert after dinner or should I have a second dessert now? It is Mardi Gras. Um, or maybe you thought about memory tests. You have an exam coming up and you're hoping that really what I have to say will help you ace it this time or you just came from watching, actually, is Jeopardy on now? Whenever. Jeopardy is a great example of memory tests. What you, I would predict you were less likely to think about are the wide assortment of other types of memory tasks that we look at as cognitive psychologists. Those include things like priming effects. If I just show you the word cat and later time your reaction time to read the word dog, you'll be faster than if you haven't seen the word cat earlier. And maybe you didn't think about all the procedural memories that are stored away, like riding a bicycle or driving a car, things that aren't um, uh, necessarily explicit memories. One way we divide up memory, these items at the top, these are, these are more explicit memories, and those at the bottom are implicit memories. So when I talk about uh, memory today, I'm not just going to talk about it like we often think about it in these, these details or the stories of our lives, um, but also in this, this broad way um, that memory gets to be defined. So that's the first thing about memory is that it's, it's a, it encompasses a variety of uh, procedures and effects. And the second thing that's important is uh, partly that memory uh, is reconstructive. So if you've seen the movie Inside Out, I really like this movie for a lot of reasons, but you should not believe that your memories are stored. It's just your mail, don't worry. It's just just my mail? You're getting Oh, because I had to pull my... Um, I am going to worry about that because that's... Um, as I will talk later about attention, and that is... <laughs> see, you can see there's a... Oh, you can't see that, but you would know there's a faculty senate meeting on Friday, so the emails are flying in. It's not going to stop. or merit pay. It's going to be... It'll, keep, it'll get worse if we don't <laughs> shut it down. Trust me. Um, so our memory is reconstructive. So in that movie, the, the memories of the little girl kind of come in these marbles, and they put them in, and they watch them. That's not really how our memory works. Instead, when we're trying to retrieve a memory, we're pooling pieces from a lot of different uh, places, a lot of different brain structures. And because of this, our memory has a degree of fallacy to it, right? That's why it was so easy for you to shout, two animals for Moses. And I have to say, you were quicker. I do this example a lot. You were much quicker on average um, to for someone to solve the puzzle um, that it's really Noah that we're talking about. We also know that uh, people can be convinced to create memories of events that have never even occurred. Um, so that can just be as simple as a word list of very related items. If I show you blanket, rest, pillow, nap, tired, you'll report the word sleep as having been on the list even when it wasn't there. More intriguingly, if we get your parents to send back when people printed photos, photos into the lab of your childhood, we can use those to create a fake photo of you in a hot air balloon. And about a third of people, if they're brought into the lab time and time again to look through photos, most of which are real, will create a very elaborate stories about the time that they rode in a hot air balloon. Um, so, you know, you want to be, this is weird, the purpose is not just to distract 
you know, to fool people into believing things, but to show that, you know, we really create um, our presence. And that will be important as we uh, start to talk about faith later. But another perk to memory, depending on the type, it can actually be quite durable. So even though it's subject to error, um, it also works quite well. If anyone has tested the idea that you don't forget how to ride a bicycle, you know, you might want to try that. Give yourself a 10 or 15 year break. You will find that those procedural memories um, are quite durable. And that, again, that will be helpful, particularly when we talk about things regarding faith. So my favorite uh, quote about memory um, comes from the text I use for my graduate cognition course, which is, memory is what the brain does, which makes giving a talk like this nice because uh, virtually anything you talk about, I could make a good argument that, that memory um, has relationship to it. So this is just one way of representing uh, the way that our brain structure are related to all of those different subtypes of memory, and I won't uh, there will be no quiz on this, um, nor will we go into detail about all of them, but you can see that this is um, a wide variety of systems, both kind of lower level um, things like conditioning um, associated with things like the cerebellum versus more complicated or complex memories, which we associate with the prefrontal cortex. And in this case, this diagram, I chose it because it's looking at emotional processing, um, which is highly related to the uh, amygdala. So we don't need to, I just wanted you to be a little bit familiar with all of those um, kind of brain terms because some of these, this is not the only thing these brain structures do, but because they're related to memory, they can help us understand um, why then memory is uh, related to the other pieces of the talk. Another thing that's important to know about memory is it's very associated with perception. And when I say perception, I mean uh, things related to all of our senses. So right now, um, you're, you know, you're seeing me and you're hearing me, but if you've taken a course in sensation and perception, you would learn that that's only kind of true. What you're really doing is reinterpreting a bunch of sound waves and a bunch of light rays that get broken down in structures and put back together. I try not to think about that too much because it starts to feel um, a little sci-fi for me. Uh, but what's important to know about perception and memory um, is that that amygdala, that centerpiece that's related to emotion, that's very important both in perception um, and in memory. Um, it's, a, it's a stopping point for just about every sense. Um, so we're going to be able to take advantage of this later um, in both humor and faith. So that is some, a little bit on basic memory. Um, What's been very exciting in the last 10 years is this shift to looking at not just the idea of memory looking at the past, but how important memory is for imagining the future. So did anyone see the film Inception that was popular probably, it feels like not very long ago, but it's been a while, I think. Um, and in that film, the main character, the premise of this film involves people imagining um, new scenarios, and the character says, never recreate from memory always imagine new places. And this is the moment when I became very angry at the film because that's not how it works. Our imagining of the future is actually uh, completely rooted in our ability to recollect from the past to create something novel. So we know that if uh, people have an impaired memory, they also have an impaired imagination. And this uh, is demonstrated in uh, studies with people with amnesia. And so what we have here are people being asked to imagine being on a white sandy beach in a tropical bay. And you see very strong differences between the way a patient can imagine and describe this scene and a control subject. Um, so I don't want to fully read to you, um, partly because I asked my students pet peeves about professors on the first day, and several of them said, I know how to read. So I will not. I will now take that seriously. Um, but the, the patient, they claim they're not really seeing things. If you closed your eyes right now and thought about a sandy beach on a tropical bay, which it feels a little bit like in Portland the last couple days, right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty close in the 60s and the sun is blazing. The patient's not feeling that at all. They're seeing a little bit of blue. They're seeing white sand, but they aren't, they aren't having a full, rich experience. Whereas the control subject is giving this lavish description. It, it involves all of the senses. They're hearing things, they're seeing things, it's very expansive, it's very detailed. Okay, but this 
The idea here with this, the research that's been looking at this is that the control subject is able to reach into their long-term memory and imagine these things because of what's already rooted there. Because the amnestic is impaired in their memory, they can't draw upon this to create something new um, when requested. So the most important things to remember about my memory primer, and I know that I called it a brief memory primer, but I could keep you here for months talking about memory, so that's a brief to me. Um, memory takes many forms, whether that's you know what's rolling around in your head right now from what I just said to being able to prime you on something that you read years ago. It's linked to both sensory perception and imagination, and it really is um, what the brain does. So let's... Now that we are all very pro-memory, let's, uh, let's talk. Let's have a little bit of time on a little bit of fun. So you likely have heard the setup to many jokes that start. This seems like an appropriate setup. A pastor, a priest, and a rabbi walk into a bar. And then I most recently saw this followed by this cartoon, um, which is a fine demonstration of how uh, memory plays a role in cartoon processing, right? So for most of us, when we hear this setup, we think about a pub, right? That's the, that's the, uh, the semantic structure that's being set up by this joke because of our history from that. Now, if you hadn't heard that joke before in your life, I didn't look up the exact frequency of these relative um, uses of the, the two meanings for the word bar, you may not find that as amusing uh, because you don't, you don't have, again, that sort of past experience that this is, this is how we set things up. Okay, so we have this lifetime of experience, that memory gets triggered when we hear the setup, and then we get a surprising outcome. So we can do that. We don't just have to do that with cartoons. We can do that with knock-knock uh, jokes. So hopefully you'll continue your participatory ways. I will tell you um, my child's favorite knock-knock joke to tell, which is knock-knock. Yeah. Broken pencil. Broken pencil. <laughs> Never mind, it's pointless. <laughs> so that. <laughs> now it's good. I'll, and she's only four and a half. I don't think she understands why it's so funny. She just knows <laughs> that people enjoy hearing that joke. Um, so again, we've taken the advantage of the expectation that's been created in life and, and now messed with it in sort of two ways. So one, we've taken advantage of the fact that a broken pencil would be pointless, so that's amusing on that level. But then it's also a funny joke because when people are telling you a joke, they might say, never mind, it's pointless, because they realize that their memory has failed them in trying to figure out the rest of this joke, right? And so you think, oh, I'm not going to hear the end of the joke, and then you realize, oh, no, that is the joke, right? It's a, it's a double joke there. Uh, another, my personal favorite kind of jokes um, are puns. Um, and so this is one that my, I guess I call my husband's cousins, my cousins and my cousin-in-law posted to Facebook. It's more economical for museums to hire workers 12 at a time because they're cheaper by the Dawson. <laughs> now, this joke, only good if you know what that word means. And I'll admit that I did double check to make sure I really knew what it, I could tell it was doing a, a play on the word dozen, but I needed to, you know, like had a sense about what docent was, but I double-checked. I mean, and, you know, it's people that give museum tours, right? So it makes sense that they would want to hire by the docent. <laughs> so again, we've, um, we're relying on our ability for our semantic memory to understand what a homophone is, um, and then when we can recognize that and get the disconnect, then we create this, this humor. Okay, so here we're working both with our semantic memory, um, which is our memory for facts and information, and our working memory, which is sort of keeping track of the joke while it's going on. Now we can also look a bit at what we might call humor impairments. I probably should have set up my YouTube video first. Um, so there are certainly individual differences. And we'll start here by, do we have any economists in the room today? I'm a professional comedian, right? So if something goes wrong, like jokes don't always work. So if a joke doesn't work, you just keep throwing stuff out there until you find something that sticks, right? It's basically the same thing that the Treasury Department has been doing for the last time and a half. Oh, we can't see our video. I think uh, I know so why. So here's the economics recipe for scrambled eggs. Uh, find a large pan with a convex hull. <laughs> there are probably about six people in the world who get that joke. Uh, I'm yeah. happy to see that all of them are here tonight. 
uh, put the pan on the stove and add two tablespoons of olive oil. Uh, if you're a Keynesian, stimulate the pan over medium heat. Uh, if you're not a Keynesian, don't stimulate the pan, just wait until the oil is hot but not smoking. It take a while. So, I don't know about you, but those jokes are not funny to me. Because I have taken zero classes in economics. I know how to make scrambled eggs, so I can sort of start to feel like I can understand the way the joke is working. I know a little bit about the way the Treasury Department works, so I think I could if I had to explain to someone why that could be perceived as a funny joke. But those people in the audience, that was like broken pencil level, never mind it's pointless, <laughs> humor. Okay, and I guess that this person does this, my a colleague from economics, when I was discussing giving this talk, he was like, you should show clips from the stand-up economist. I was like, I'm going to use that to show why humor is relative, right? So without <laughs> the proper memory structure, um, the jokes don't really work because you need to have that semantic memory base to understand the context um, for humor. There's also been a little bit of literature to show that um, with aging, um, sometimes humor processing can decrease, likely due to changes in brain structures like the prefrontal cortex, um, which uh, aren't as efficient over time. So, um, you know, I suppose in you know, some time I'll find those jokes even less funny um, without my PFC. So just like we see... Uh, changes in memory um, with aging from the prefrontal cortex. This also, this is again, um, correlational evidence that these, uh, that, that memory is important for processing humor. So I would sort of just summarize the role, oh wait, I lost my mouse because of the split screen. Um, if I were to summarize the role of humor and memory, you know, without your memory, all your jokes are going to fall flat, right? So that's why you have to think about your audience and also, but again, be appreciative of your, even if a joke makes you groan, it shows that your memory is working quite well, right? Because you understand um, why it's working. So for the, the second half of the talk, I'm going to talk a bit about this, actually a lot bit since it's half, uh, about this, how does faith and intersect with memory from a cognitive perspective. Um, so again, we're going to do some imagining. So if you just right now uh, were to think about a picture of God, what does that look like to you? Right? So if you, if you do that in your head and you, if you like to have your, take a Trinitarian approach, maybe you like to have different pictures for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but just think about what that recalls. And then I'd like you to think about how you learned that picture. And so sort of where do you have, we call the source monitoring judgments. So I can, I can tell you that my answers, you know, would be like definitely my idea of what the father looks like comes from my mother's descriptions. Jesus is 100% this like headshot that is at the end of the hallway on the second floor of the bedroom of the house that is the only house of my parents that I've ever known. Like that's the first, I could retrieve other things, right? I don't have just a unit Jesus memory system, but that's the one that's the sort of default primed. And the Holy Spirit, I'm pretty sure is like the cover of the music book that we had growing up. It's like this dumb and a flame and it's very kind of 70s early 80s in description right so that is you know that that memory has gotten repeated over and over and over again and so then that becomes um, what I draw upon and so this really relates um, to that stuff that I talked about before when I talked about the role of imagination uh, and memory and how these things are linked right so when we want to access the past when we're trying to find um, something tangible that we really need that if we want to imagine a new future. So I would say, so that before we did an example with the beach, um, when we start to talk about issues of faith, now we really need to root things in memory um, because we don't have, so right, I didn't put this caveat earlier. I would say most of us have not had the kind of spiritual experience where we can say, just like we can say, oh yes, I definitely remember going to the beach. I definitely remember that time that, you know, I talked to Jesus, right? So I think for many of us, our spiritual is rooted instead in the tangible and the ways that we can um, experience it um, either through ritual or through pictures or for other items. So for most of us, when we close our eyes and think about God, 
we aren't creating something new, but rather we're using our memories to support it. So um, I don't want to preview too much about practice, but I would say that, you know, part of wanting to have a rich spiritual life means you need to have a rich memory uh, on which to draw from um, for your for your thoughts, for your experiences. So, yeah, so we create something as unknown as the idea of God by rooting it in things that we know. And I'll talk from a Catholic perspective. I, I suspect this would be true for just about any faith practice. Um, the sort of um, things that we do to practice our faith, those really take advantage of the way that memory works best. So we repeat things, right? There's a level of predictability to what happens. Um, we engage the senses. So to me, you know, the sort of height, like the, the time that I think about this happening the most would be in an, an Easter vigil mass. So that's the place where you're doing an awful lot of visual things. You're, you know, there's a lot to look at. There's a lot to hear. A lot of songs are happening. We've got touch happening right at the, the right of peace, or maybe you're in a, a parish that holds hands for the Our Father. If we're baptizing new people, that's a lot of uh, touching experience that's happening. We've got smells from the incense. I bet if I even just talk about Easter Vigil incense right now, your amygdalas are firing and you're retrieving that smell, right? And we could, if we, if we had that smell in here, you could be like, that's it, that's not it. So we take advantage of this interplay between sensation in the presence and memory of things in the past, and we can help that. That really helps us to then imagine something that is less tangible, is this idea of, of God. And there's been a little bit of research about this, um, not a lot, on kind of how how this all plays out from a cognitive perspective. So uh, Laura Min, who's a psychological anthropologist and wrote a book called When God Talks Back, she did a study where people were um, randomly assigned to be in one of three conditions, either a control group that was just listening to stories about the gospel, people that were in a centering prayer condition, and people that were in an imaginative prayer condition. And the imaginative is just what it sounds like you were. It was um, much more of a... Uh, you were praying, but you were definitely supposed to be imagining what was happening in these scenes as things went on. And what they found was that on, um, so one, this you know certainly had impacts on people's feelings about prayers, but I would say from the psychology perspective um, of particular interest is that those who were in that imaginative prayer condition after the study was over, on just general tests of mental imagery, they'd improved. So they were literally experiencing more vivid images for things unrelated to the prayer practices um, compared to both their initial score and compared to the other two groups. So when uh, this, when we when we took this abstract idea of, of faith, of the idea of you know having a relationship with Jesus, and made it a tangible exercise where you really imagined what that looked like, that then affected processes that are unrelated to faith. So making a, a very clear link between um, uh, between memory and perception, and also spiritual uh, experiences. For me, uh, what I think, uh, my, one of my favorite ways to think about uh, faith and imagination is through song. You know, I think that's another thing that, um, you know, when I list like 10 things I like about being a Catholic, some of our some of the songs are, are right up there. And one of my personal favorites, probably because I'm a cognitive psychologist, is the song Open My Eyes. Does anyone know this is part of your, your repertoire? Okay, so, yes, oh, we've got a singer. Thank you. It, I was, I am not bold enough to sing. Um, but, yes, it says the, the main lines of, the, of this song are, Open my eyes, Lord, help me to see your face. Open my ears, Lord, help me to hear your voice. And open my heart, Lord, help me to love like you. And that is that song is basically asking for you to engage in, you know, sensation and perception and memory, right? So we say, literally, God, open my eyes. Not like, God, send me a message, but like, use this, the same pieces of sensory material that I, that I use in the material world to help me have a better spiritual experience, right? Help me to see your face. Open up my ears so that I can help me to hear your voice, right? As I said earlier, technically what you're asking for is to like, have light rays enter and be reconstructed in sound waves, but that does not make for a nice song, right? No one wants to sing about song and light waves, <laughs> during mass, but this idea, right? And we can we can understand this because we use our eyes and we use our ears. So it, in, in some ways, 
for those of us that like concrete things, right? We could think of concrete examples. What would that look like? Um, and then the third one, I would argue, is the memory one, right? Open my heart, Lord. Help me to love like you. How do I have any idea what it's like to love like God likes, loves if I don't have some kind of construct about what that love looks like, right? So, you know, you might want to think about what that is for you. If you, you know, I, I would think about maybe some some parables, or I might think about um, Mary's choice to say yes, to be the mother for Jesus, or certainly we'd want to talk about the idea of, you know, Jesus um, on the cross as being an act of love, right? So loving like you, we've learned about that because we have rooted memories about what our faith life means. And so when we ask to have our hearts opened, what we're asking in some ways is also, you know, open up my memories so that that's a readily accessible neuronal trace so that I can respond in the world in this way. But again, doesn't make for a good lyric. Um, so we have to, we talk about it in a different way. Okay, so that, um, that for me, I think is one of the real ways that we've um, developed a, uh, a system of ritual that, that takes advantage of the way our cognitive system works um, so that we can then experience spirituality. We can also talk about um, how familiarity um, can play a role in the way we experience faith. And so um, this is a prayer um, that I will read aloud, even though you could read it to yourselves. Um, O thou, the breath, the light of all, let this light create a heart shrine within, and your counsel rule till oneness guides all. Your one desire then acts with ours as in all light, so in all forms. Grant what we need each day in bread and insight, Loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' faults. Don't let surface things delude us, but keep us from unripe acts. To you belongs the ruling mind, the life that can act, and so the song that beautifies all. From age to age it renews, in faith I will to be true. Okay, and this was, uh, this was something I got from a, a friend who's, again, Facebook, the source of all my best material, um, who's a, an ordained minister. And I read this and I was like, oh, I kind of like that. But for those of you with a strong familiarity, do you know what this is? Our Father? Yes. Very good, Stephanie, right? Showing my recollection. This is the Our Father in an alternate translation, right? Which when I, I like read the prayer and liked it, and then she said that, I was like, oh, okay, now I can kind of see it, right? Really, like for me, this, this bread part is what helps, right? I have to orient everything about the prayer around the bread lines because I know where those happen. Right? So we, we can compare that to the Our Father, for which we're probably more familiar. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Right? So you probably, if that, certainly if the Our Father, you hadn't heard it before today, this probably wouldn't hold a lot of meaning for you. You may not be able to see those connections. Um, or it could be that that is so familiar to you that in the case of me, like it never occurred to me that people might say they are father with totally different words as a, you know, uh, as a good um, person that doesn't always see the, the breadth of experience happening around them. Um, and we could probably do a whole nother talk about kind of where is that ideal familiarity going to be um, for when you want to have a good spiritual experience, right? Something purely novel may not be great, but sometimes super familiar isn't great either because you could just sort of, like I could have rattled off the Our Father in a much less kind of prayerful way, right, as you might occasionally catch yourself doing, like just sort of go through the words, right? So I think that there's, there's a level at which... Um, uh, we can sometimes, our memory is normally fantastic, but if something is too familiar, sometimes too easy to retrieve, we can lose that. And I certainly think, um, I don't know, there's something nice after 33 years of talking about it another way to say, release the strands we hold of others' faults, right? That, uh, that to me sounds a little easier than forgiving those who have trespassed against me, right? Loosing the strands, I kind of, I like that. Again, but, right, it's nice mental imagery, taking advantage of that, um, the way we, we see things. 
So in some ways, this could feel a little parallel to that stand-up economist in that if you don't necessarily have the, the base familiarity, there, there isn't a lot of overlap. But once you're uh, at least aware of it or, or much more in tuned or already familiar, if you've sort of caught on right away, then you can really start to, to put the pieces together. Um, so I would say that, you know, in general, our, our memory forms a framework that assists in faith, right? So I'm not saying it causes it. I think that, you know, we're, I'm not taking a reductionist approach here, I'm not arguing that it's because of memory that you believe in God. I'm saying instead that the way our memory works assists us in what could be a difficult task to believe in something that uh, cannot be uh, necessarily proven. And that especially the rituals in which we, we engage, they take advantage of, of these memory processes. Um, and again, just going back to that beach example, right? If you want to draw a really great picture of a beach, if you want to really imagine something, you need to have some experience on, on which to draw. So if we want to have a good experience when we want to think about what it means to love like God or to hear God's voice or to see, we probably need to do some practicing about it. Okay, so if memory makes faith easier, um, can we take advantage to also help make uh, faith stronger. Um, so what I'm going to do uh, in this part of the talk is I am going to talk about increasing faith using the same examples that I use when I give talks to students that are on um, academic probation for how they can better prepare for exams and get off academic probation. No one has told me that you're on spiritual probation, right? That's not, not uh, I'm not making any judgments about that. But certainly, I think for many of us, Lent is a time where we might feel like we've been on a little spiritual probation. And so we feel really motivated and pepped up. So what are some things that we know about memory that as Lent kicks off tomorrow, maybe we can end up um, with a stronger faith by the end of March. And so I'm going to talk about this in, in the context of some pretty basic memory principles. Um, so the first one is something called the spacing effect. And if you would really like to see something fun, you could come to one of my conferences and watch people yell at each other about the theoretical underpinnings of this. We've published thousands of articles. It's highly replicable. We're very invested. Why is the spacing effect true? Well, first of all, what is the spacing effect? Spacing effect is that if you are going to repeat things over time to learn them, you're much better off repeating them spaced out instead of massed together. Or, as I like to make the argument, because memory works like the brain works, um, and the, uh, sorry, because memory is a part of the body and therefore works like the body works, you should really be taking a training plan approach um, to either your academic preparations or maybe to your spiritual preparations. In other words, don't prayer cram, okay? Cramming praying will be less effective than spacing things out over time. So if your goal for Lent is to pray for two hours um, a week, don't try to do them all on Saturday afternoon. It'd be better to break them up here. So this is a training plan to run a half marathon. Um, and I, Lent is not 12 weeks old, so we could, uh, 12 weeks long, we could truncate this. Um, but we can see that we don't have to start off running 13 miles at a time. You only need to run four to eventually get to that end point. But we space things out. We don't run once a week. We run several times. I tell students, you know, we've got these little races here, practice exams. I often feel like my students' training plan is rest, 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 panic, 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 run, run, run a lot, not do well in the race, right? Doesn't work well for the race, doesn't work well for statistics. You know, from strictly a memory perspective, I am not a trained spiritual counselor, but I would argue that that's not going to help you have a rich spiritual life when you're like, don't pray, don't pray, don't pray, don't pray, 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 often correlated with studying for the exam, right? As often these things are happening, pray and study, pray and study, pray and study, okay? Better to space things out. And this is one of the most robust findings in memory research. So this is, you know, I could have picked many studies out, um, this is on the y-axis. We have the number of correct responses on two different tasks, so higher is better. And you can see memory is anywhere from 50% to 100% better when we just space things out across time. 
Um, it's also often the case that you don't need to do as much total work when you're giving your memory time in between. It'll retrieve more efficiently that way so you can, I don't want to say you can pray less and get more out of that, but that does sound like a really good deal, right? You could, you know, pray for five minutes every day and that probably will yield better results than doing an hour just once a week. Again, from a memory perspective, I can't promise, um, except from, from those variables. Uh, the second effect is something called the testing effect. And um, this is a very robust finding that people, if they're either given more time to study or a practice test, they do much better if they have a practice test. And so in this graph, we can see that's true. So the, test, the practice test group is uh, the left and the dark gray, and the right are the people that just had more time to study. And then the left two are the top third on the baseline measure. So if we want to talk about this from a, a spiritual perspective, these are people that come in already maybe with a little more spiritual knowledge. And then even for people that are on the bottom third that did the worst on the pretest, they still are seeing gains of at least 10%, which in terms of class grades, that's a whole letter grade. So what would it mean to, you know, take a testing approach to spirituality? I'm not suggesting picking up like, you know, Saint flashcards or something. <laughs> but what I am suggesting is that rather than just trying to passively work, maybe just sort of skimming through things. Like I have a friend that sends me two, I met her on a retreat and she sends me two emails every day. And there's a big difference between I'm just like rah, 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 skimming through them versus actually trying to richly engage with them or, you know, maybe later in the day saying, oh, right, what was that? What was that passage from Psalms that I heard this morning, right? Trying to retrieve something from your memory is so much better than just um, kind of rotely looking at things over and over again. Um, the other way that we can uh, test is to often, you know, try to um, to teach someone else something. So I think that that's, I imagine that Portland probably has a lot of events going on for Lent. Can someone confirm this, that if you wanted to get, in, get engaged? Yes, we do, right? And so doing these things in uh, in a communal setting where you're talking, is there talking that happens, discussing, um, possibly? There are in reconciliations, yes, Yes. There are prayer groups in every dorm. Right, right, and prayer groups in every dorm. So that can be often a more kind of engaged, invested um, experience, which will then lead to better memories, which later when you need to retrieve some spiritual um, things from your memory, they're going to be more readily accessible if you've tested initially. So that's our, our second thing. So you could space things out. You could try to test yourself or at least just try to be less, less passive um, when you're engaging with material. The third one, which is sort of related to this passiveness, is, is the idea of attention. So just about any kind of memory that's important, it, the learning happens better when we're under full attention, when we're only trying to do one thing. And that, that's in contrast to divided attention, which is the illusion of multitasking, working on two things at the same time, like praying while answering your emails. Um, <laughs> that was good. Um, it's probably better than nothing but not as good as full attention. So I would say if I wanted to take advantage of this, um, you know, for students, I tell them, and for us, I think this is definitely true, whether you're trying to study for class or enrich your own personal spiritual practice, I turn off your phone or hide it somewhere, right? Because that thing, we have become conditioned, going back to that very, you know, those original slides in the cerebellum, that kind of lizard part of your brain you might have heard people talk about. Like, we have conditioned it to respond to our phones. Like, when they buzz, we drool a little, just like Pavlov's dogs with the bell. And it distracts us. It pulls our attention. Our amygdala is firing. It's saying, think about something else. You know, for especially if you're trying to develop a prayer practice, that's hard. Okay? It's a hard thing to do. So make it easier on yourself. Turn off your phone and kind of set up a particular area um, where this is going to be that space um, where that happens. That will help draw your attention, but then it will also um, set up a context. Okay, So uh, learning just works better when you've already put yourself into the, into the frame of what you're trying to learn. So I tell students, if you can get to class a few minutes early and look through notes from the last time, that sort of says, oh, right, that's the thing we were looking about. Okay? And if you wanted to put that into, um, in, into a spiritual context, yeah, these are not, these are certainly things that I've heard before, right? Get to Mass a few minutes early and like look at the readings, right? So put your brain back in the perspective of here's what I'm trying to do. Um, 
again, things that I like about being Catholic. We have a ritual for beginning the Mass. We start with the sign of the cross, right? That tells. I've, I've been through that experience over and over and over. That triggers all of the related memories in my brain related to what the experience of Mass is like. It sort of primed my memory system to be ready to then take in, you know, this abstract concept, concept of spirituality. Okay, that's that, that works a little better than just, you know, kind of... You know, leaving YouTube open in one frame and, and trying to at the same time um, you know, work on your your spiritual pieces. So I would say, just you know, in general, um, your, your memory is going to be the strongest when you're working on things that you repeat over time and that you do with effort. But it would be unfair to say that you know that's everything we should do for uh, for our own spiritual development. And again, you know, now I'm going to talk outside of what my my PhD is in, but I would certainly say that when we start to talk about spirituality as compared to studying for my stats exam that my students are taking on Tuesday, there needs to be some time for some inactive processing too, right? This is not supposed to be some kind of monologue that's happening. Um, we're supposed to be having a dialogue um, with God. And I also really do assume that, you know, there's more to spirituality than just the memory piece that I'm talking about, right? There's something that's, I don't you can call it privileged or unique or special or different about spirituality. Like memory is going to get you far, but it's not going to, it's not everything. And I don't want to give, again, I don't want to give a reductionist impression that if you just do these things, you'll magically have a great um, spiritual life. If that was true, I'm taking the show on the road, right? And going to uh, make a lot of money for your center. <laughs> So just to conclude, you know, I do hope that you feel now that your memory really is um, more friend than foe and that it, it's worth it to take advantage of the way the system is already in place, both to make life more faithful and more fun, or if you prefer, you know, if you kind of a, a more pessimistic approach, if you know that, that joke about the person that prays to win the lottery ticket over and over again, are we familiar with this? It's like, please, I want to win the lottery. Please, I want to win the lottery. Please, I want to want to win the lottery. I'm going to use the money for such good. And eventually God shouts down, buy a ticket, right? So I guess um, what I'm saying here is that, you know, we need to not just um, sit around and wait. We need to have that sort of ticket in our brain that there's a little bit of work on our end that needs to happen um, in addition uh, to what for, we're asking for beyond that. So I've kind of given you the, the buying the ticket piece um, of your spirituality. And with that, thank you so much. I'd be happy to answer questions or hear your thoughts. We don't, you lay out a plan of why it should work and does work and why, why can't we make it work ourselves? Is it just in our cognitive, as a cognitive psychologist, why do we work against our own self-interest? So part two that is not part of the talk, I would say that the other thing you could do is pick up a copy of the book called The Beck Diet Solution, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Weight Loss, and everything it says to do for weight loss do it for your spiritual life. And so that would mean the first thing you should do is get out a note card and write down all of the reasons that you want to have a richer spiritual life and how, find a way to read that twice a day so that when you hit that point at the end of the day that you're like, oh, I'm supposed to do this thing, but I'm kind of tired. I don't feel like it. You're like, oh, wait, no, no. I want to have a richer spiritual life because I've noticed that when I'm practicing my prayer, I'm more patient with my child and I don't want to be a mom that yells all the time. Like, I want her to think her name is Joyce, not Joyce, right? And so therefore, it's worth it to me to continue to practice this. And then you give yourself credit every time you make the good decision. That's super important. And you figure out ways to manage your environment. There's like a list of 10 foundation strategies, but I, did, I felt like that was taking it one step past the talk promise. But I, right, of the steps, it's hard, right? Our inertia is not... We don't like to do hard things, I think, on average. I agree with you. Yeah, that's the, that's the next piece is how do, you, how do you do it. And I am having my students try to do some of these this semester. I send them these text messages that are like, did you read your advantages to doing well today? Have you given yourself credit? Because I also think that's not our default position to be positive with ourselves. And I think that's part of it, too. And being patient with, um, with not being perfect. Progress, not perfection. That's another good yeah, there, there's a little bit of forgiveness, I think, in the Catholic faith that we might uh, want to look into for that with ourselves. Yes. Um, have you noticed any of the any of the methods that you've come up with? Have you noticed any of them in like any autobiographies 
from Saints, and if so, which ones? I haven't read any autobiographies since. <laughs> I've read my life with the Saints, but I don't remember anything that happened in it. So <laughs> I would predict that they do. Oh, wait, we were just talking about Edith before this. Edith died before this, and I had a vague sense that when I heard her talk about her that she had these very specified, like, times of day to pray. Is she the woman that says, like, if you think you want to pray for an hour, you really should pray for two, or that's someone else? Probably somebody else, but, but still. But, but would be consistent with that. So I would, without having any information about it, arrogantly bet I'm sure that's what happened. But I don't know. I would say that I would, I, that would only be a guess based on, on principles of memory. But that's an interesting question, right? Did they, were they natural cognitive psychologists without realizing it and taking advantage of that? I don't know. I absolutely don't. I should at least know about what Elizabeth Seaton did, because I go to teach at Seaton Hall, but I don't know what she did either, <laughs> except starting Catholic school. Oh, whoever would like to, I, you guys can battle about it and see who had a hand up first. You want to go? Okay. So we read this book a few years ago called Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, I don't know if familiar with it, but it's about uh, intellectual life at, uh, in, in colleges. And one thing that I remember from it is that it defined an intellectual. And the, the first quality of an intellectual was that this person was widely read and was basically pretty smart. Mm -hmm. The second quality was a good memory. Oh. And with this good memory was able to draw from all the stuff he or she had learned mm -hmm. and synthesize it and make decisions from it and so forth. But that has always stuck with me because I don't have a good memory but he does, so so we work together. <laughs> He's an intellectual, but I would predict you have a good memory in ways that you aren't appreciating. I'm sorry? I bet you have a good memory just in the ways that, that you aren't appreciating, right? So maybe not for well, facts of things that you've read, but I bet there's a lot in there. I don't have time to quiz you fully, but I'm equally confident, but no yes. never accused me okay. of it. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't giving you the proper test. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, can, you you indicated right at the beginning that you were going to approach this topic from from the faith standpoint uh, rather than the heavy cognitive direction. Oh, I, I would say more from the perspective that I'm a cognitive psychologist that thinks that faith is real, as opposed to a cognitive psychologist that thinks that we can just use cognitive processes to explain away the idea of God. My question uh, comes in the interface somewhere. Okay. Or it doesn't relate at all. Perfect. To this but um, I remember uh, both Carl Rahner, who was a very significant, significant Catholic theologian in the 20th century, and also uh, Thomas Merton, who was referred to by our Pope in recent days uh, as a, a, a spiritual or a spiritual person, and one entered into a lot of different ideas and connections that way, Trappist monk. Um, both of these people said that if we were going to survive as spiritual people, people of faith, in the coming days, that we must become mystics. And I think somehow that they were talking about the connection of experiencing God not just as object, who do we think God is, what God looks like, how we see God, but somehow experiencing God as subject. So my question is, is there a connection in any of these directions that you've explored that makes that is exploring, uh, experiencing God as subject, um, and how that might or might not tie into memory? The proper answers, of course, right? Um, yes, and now let me answer a different question, but I will not play that, that trick. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I suppose that a way to talk about this is, is to think about this idea of, I would think that imagination would be very important when we want to talk about uh, God. I mean, I am not familiar with this, you know, those sort of theological terms and what the difference between them. When I hear you say God is subject, I sort of think of that as being more of a, an interactive engagement, you know, that this idea or the, you know, that, that that to me, if I had to like pick a phase, it's like, all right, well, but that to me is more about like the Holy Spirit, 
acting within me, but I would say that that's still, I still need to root that in some kind of objective memory so that I know what the subjectivity is that I am experiencing. But again, all of that said with the idea that that is taking, you know, just this lens and leaving completely open for a lot of spiritual things that, you know, that don't get explained by by neuronal activations or miracles or all of those things. Like I'm not trying to leave those off the table. I'm just saying that within this table, that's how I would um, I would think about that. But that's a good thing to sort of write to. Yeah. We need to become mystics if we want to have a prayer. Because we, you know, there is a lot of reductionism happening in if you read, you know, if you, if you read the, the writings in the field and the people, and certainly if you polled cognitive psychologists about their faith, it would be like, <laughs> got faith in my data. That's pretty good. Faith is going to get me tenure. But not. there's not a lot of necessarily, and you'll notice I'm post-tenure now that I'm here giving this talk, right? But I have had the gumption to do it pre-tenure. I don't know. I'd like to think I would have read a mystic one. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes? You mentioned that some research indicated that as people age, their ability to uh, to recognize humor diminishes. So. I wonder if they uh, if they really probe deeply enough. You know, as we age, we've heard a lot of this stuff. <laughs> so I can send you the article that I was, I was reading a review article. So I had read the details of the study, um, but I think it would depend on the nature of the humor because there's a lot of evidence. Uh, if you read some uh, memory and aging studies with vocabulary fluency, older adults tend to outperform younger adults. As you said, right? They've been living longer. They have they have richer, stronger experiences. So I don't know. Uh, I would guess that it might be on um, sort of humor that relies heavily on a lot of uh, working memory processes, but maybe not puns. Like, you might still be like, yeah, I got that. I got 50 more puns that are better than your pun there, and that's why I'm prepared. And I don't know how they were measuring um, humor processing. You know, you could measure it by, like, you know, the, the degree of inhale before the laugh, or the skin conductus response, or the duration. I mean, you know, cognitive psychologists could take something interesting like humor and make it so boring. <laughs> 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 very, very funny. Yes, right, right. Well, right, you have to have that, that element of surprise, which is why my daughter isn't good at telling jokes, because she tries to just, she doesn't understand the, the way a joke works, so she makes the same joke six times in a row. She wants you to keep laughing at the broken pencil joke. It's not funny. If I tell you broken pencil right now, you're not going to laugh. Certainly wouldn't have left if I did it 10 seconds later, but she thinks it's still hilarious and she wants you to keep laughing. So yeah, I think that probably is, um, that would be some of it. So it would depend on kind of the, the nature. There is a lot, so when I tried to do the research, uh, when I was doing the research for the talk, there's an awful lot of humor effects on memory and people don't always tend to look at it the other way, right? Just like they look at um, how does, um, you know, how does memory explain awakening, not just how could they be informed by memory. That you know, the field is definitely guilty of going one direction a lot of the time, for sure. Did I see a hand? Yeah. I just wanted to, that was a piece that really resonated deeply with me. Um, my mom's experiencing dementia. And so there's a rapid change in memory, like yeah. an accelerated aging in that sense. And that's one of the things my family has noticed most deeply is her loss of humor, that irony and sarcasm and and pieces like that are just lost. And that was such a core part of her personality um, for all of us, you know, for family, just to be kind of joking around at the dinner table and teasing. Right. And, and that's just a piece that's gone from her. And so I think to have it explained in that way, that it is linked to her memory, that it's linked, I mean, there's other cognitive things mm -hmm. happening there too, but that was something, I don't know if that helps answer the question, but that I noticed very distinctly in the last six months that the humor is gone. Um, there are other aspects of her personality that are still very much alive, but the humor is what's been lost most distinctively for me right now. And so, um, I just, I just, that resonated with me of the, the link to memory because as her memory goes, so goes her ability to understand irony yeah. and sarcasm. Which is hard because you feel like you're losing her, you know, in the present, 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 yes. in addition to the, to the future. Yes. Thank you for sharing Yes. So in that example, then, does, does humor go away, or is it now a matter of, and I don't know how clinically you deal with this, whether within a family you <laughs> yes. would you try to deal with this that difficult, okay. 
can you look at well what memories are there, right? Like, and then re-evaluate the way in which you approach joking with someone, you know? Like yeah. I have humor I share with my wife, and I have humor I share with my friends, four-year-olds, right? And my perception of where their memory is at and where their cognitive abilities are at dictate what humor is. So in cases with dementia or you know these cognitive diseases that are degenerative, have studies been done about well how can you clinically then just reapproach how you do humor to try and maintain that type of relationship, but just in a different way? I am like I have negative clinical training, so I would I would hope that whoever is working is working on that on like a global structure. Like how do you how do you kind of protect and adjust the relationship? But I mean I do not know like what the, the standard for training is um, for that or sort of I assume that so much of it is just relative to the person right mm -hmm. and the, the nature I think dementia can take a lot of paths and so yeah I mean my answer is I hope so but I don't know all right well again thank you so much it was really a treat to be here We didn't realize it would be the day before Ash Wednesday and Lent when we scheduled to talk, but I know that cognitive psychologists tell us new habits take about 40 trials to sink in. We've got 40 days starting tomorrow. Thanks for coming. If you are a student here as part of class, we've got some sign-up sheets in the back that our student worker will um, enable you to sign in. We still have a little bit of food. And uh, thanks again for coming out tonight. Same you hitting it out of the park.